Hello, it's May 26th, 2022. My name is Simone, and this is 90s Crime Time. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. And if you're new to 90s Crime Time, welcome to the show. Like always, I hope you all had a great weekend and are having a great start to your week. And I apologize for the delay in new episodes. My personal life again got in the way. However, I plan on the new episodes to be on schedule now. So with that, let's dive in to today's the year was 1999 and in the beautiful city of honolulu hawaii this city was a melting pot of different cultures and had lots to do. Lots of natives and people from the mainland of the U.S. flocked to this gorgeous city to have fun, enjoy the scenery, which included their beautiful blue skies and bright green mountains. And for some, maybe they rode a wave or two. Here in Honolulu, you may find many locals of the city and beyond, treating each other as family, where everyone is welcome. But in November 1999, one man of Honolulu didn't see his fellow neighbors as family. He saw them as enemies. And he would let his community know just how he felt about some of them. In the following case, you'll find out who this man was the scary act he committed, and the aftermath in a case I title, Horror in Paradise. Back in the 1930s, a couple from Japan with the last name of Yashugi immigrated with their family to the island of Hawaii. The family settled in Honolulu in the Nuwanu area, and here they raised their son, Hiroyuki. Hiroyuki grew up, and when he reached adulthood, he became a postal worker. One day, while on his mail route, Hiroyuki met a woman by the name of Harumi, and eventually, the couple fell in love and married. Shortly after their marriage, they welcomed a son named Dennis, and then in 1959, 
Hiroyuki and Harumi gave birth to their second son, Byron. According to reports, the Yushugi family were pretty tight-knit and their neighbors found them to be friendly. However, the family tended to keep mostly to themselves and Harumi and Hiroyuki raised their sons with lots of love in their small wooden home Hiroyuki's parents raised him in. Speaking of their sons, their youngest, Byron, according to reports, was a quote-unquote very quiet, nice boy, and he was helpful. When Byron became a teenager, he attended Roosevelt High School, and while there, he was friendly but still quiet and reserved. For leisure, Byron became a member of the school's rifle team, and Byron seemed to have a fascination with guns from a very young age, and his interest only grew when he joined the club. According to reports, for his sophomore yearbook photo, Byron posed with a rifle by laying on his stomach while squinting through its scope with the caption of his photo saying, quote, Utilizing the spotting scope, resolute rifleman Byron Yashugi focuses on the target, end quote. Byron also joined the school's ROTC club, and to his fellow members, they thought Byron was friendly and nice, but stayed to himself. He graduated from Roosevelt, in 1977, but while still attending, Byron began to take yet another hobby seriously outside of school, and that was the practice of fish collecting. Byron loved all types of fish, but his favorites were goldfish and quawfish. And after high school, he began to breed these two fish and sold them at pet stores. Byron cared and tended for his fish so much that it was pretty much a full-time job. Because, hey, he loved what he was doing, so why not make money off of it? However, in 1977, shortly after he graduated from high school, Byron was driving his father's car from a graduation party and crashed it around a telephone pole. The car crash was so bad that the car became totaled, and the impact was so severe that Byron suffered injuries to his knee, hip, and head. When he hit his head, Byron landed on the windshield and suffered a head injury. And according to reports, due to his head injury, Byron changed. He began to show odd behaviors and thought people were talking to him and his family grew very concerned. Brian continued to function pretty well, however, so they apparently didn't bring the issue up too much. And while Byron continued to tend to his fish breeding business, in 1984, Byron landed a job at the Xerox Corporation.
Byron was hired as a service technician at Xerox, which meant when a client used a Xerox product, like a copy or fax machine, and it needed maintenance or needed a fix, Byron was one of the ones who fixed the problem. And Byron became so skilled at his job that he was hired to be the technician who routinely fixed the photocopy machine at the state capitol. Byron's clients thought the same as his former classmates, that he was quiet and reserved, but he got the job done. Although Byron may have had a steady job with Xerox, according to reports, his personal life wasn't the happiest. You see, the next year in 1985, while still suffering from his head injury, Byron was convicted of driving under the influence of alcohol and for punishment, his license was briefly suspended, he was sentenced to 72 hours of community service, and he was fined $200. And also sometime during the mid-80s, Byron still lived with his parents and brother, but his mother, Harumi, was diagnosed with cancer, and her health began to fail fast. It's unclear the relationship Byron had with his mother, but after she was diagnosed, it was reported that his mental health declined more. And when Harumi died in April 1988, Byron complained that he had a poking sensation in his head. Byron told his family and some neighbors that the poking sensation in his head was because he had, quote-unquote, a spirit tormenting him, and that the spirit was poking his brain. Byron apparently didn't know how to handle the spirit, but according to reports, his neighbors would witness Byron punching his car's dashboard all the time. But Byron continued on at Xerox, which appeared to be his saving grace. However, by the early 1990s, things began to take a turn for Byron at Xerox. During this time, Byron was still doing well as a technician, but his mental health got even worse. According to reports, in 1993, he was arrested for third-degree criminal property damage for kicking an elevator at work. After his arrest, Byron was forced to attend an anger management course and undergo a psychiatric evaluation. At his psychiatric appointment, Byron, according to reports, told the psychiatrist that he was suffering from deep-rooted delusions, had experienced auditory and visual hallucinations, and he talked about the voices he heard in his head and black shadows that followed him. As a result, his psychiatrist ordered Byron to spend five days at a mental health hospital. But after he was released, Byron's mental decline didn't subside. It also didn't help that when he returned to his job, his bosses at Xerox decided to change the group Byron was working with. Byron mostly worked solo, but he was a part of a team at Xerox that specialized in certain photocopiers. 
Byron didn't like this change at all because he liked what he was doing and what he was used to. So why change it? Even worse was that sometime after Byron's work group switch, he complained to his bosses that his new co-workers taunted him and left him out of outings. He told his bosses that his new work group members would talk amongst each other and leave him out of conversations. And sometimes they'd have outings without him. It's unclear if Byron's bosses talked to his co-workers about allegedly leaving him out. But what is known is that some of his work group complained on Byron, saying that Byron threatened their lives. Fast forwarding to 1997, Byron was still employed by Xerox. But at home, his father and brother felt things had gotten even worse mentally for him. Things were so bad and they felt so uneasy around Byron that according to a report, Byron's father requested a Xingyun priest bless their home hoping it would help relieve Byron's fears. However, the priest told his father that he suspected that Byron was experiencing mental illness and he needed additional help. Byron's father told this to his son, but Byron refused any additional help. By 1999, the Xerox Corporation phased out the model of copier in which Byron had always worked. Byron did not like this change by any means, and he let his bosses know it. After he was told he'd be working on a different type of copier, Byron feared he wouldn't be able to keep up with new technology. So he tried to keep working his old job. However, his bosses told him that to keep his job, he'd have to undergo mandatory training for the new model. But Byron resisted every attempt to change. By November 1st, 1999, his bosses had enough of Byron's resistance and told him that if he didn't take them training the next day, he'd face consequences. Byron wasn't sure what those consequences were, but he feared he would be fired. He told his family this and added that his bosses were harassing and out to get him, and he did not want to do the training. And he was going to make sure this time his voice was heard. According to local newspapers, the next day, on the morning of November 2nd, 1999, Byron's work group was preparing for a meeting on the second floor of the Xerox building. 
In another part of the building, the building's cafe, called the New Eagle, was serving the Xerox workers, which would usually include Byron's group. But since they had an early morning meeting, they wouldn't be at the cafe that day. Speaking of the cafe, around 8.05 a.m., some diners and staff heard what sounded like pots and pans banging. But thinking it was nothing, they continued on like normal. However, two minutes later at 8.07 a.m., a 911 call came in to the local dispatch. Comet, down the line. Okay. This is the ambulance. How can I help you? Hey, can I get an ambulance? Uh, please, to 1200 North Nimitz Highway, Xerox Corp. What's wrong? Somebody, somebody's got a gun. Has been shooting people up in the building. Okay, the, inside the building. Yeah, inside the building. Okay. Hold and on. you need to come for it now. Okay. You're calling from Pike Street. Yeah, I'm calling from an office on the side someplace. Okay, 1200 North Limit. Right. Okay. Okay, hang on now. Okay. The call was from a caller who worked at the Xerox Corporation, who had ran out of the building to call for help. After the harrowing phone call. Police arrived to the Xerox building within five minutes of the call. They slowly entered the building and went to where the caller described. In a second floor computer room, police found two men, one slumped in a chair and the other face down on the floor. The officers then crept out of the computer room and into a room at the other end of the hallway where they found five more men all lying on the floor with 20 bullet casings surrounding them. By 8.15 a.m., paramedics arrived to tend to the men shot, but no pulses could be found. Meanwhile, by this point, word had spread around Honolulu and Hawaii as a whole that there had been a shooting at Xerox which led to many frantic loved ones to clog phone lines, checking in on their families and friends. By 8.30 a.m., police had been informed that the shooting suspect, Byron Yashugi, was no longer on the premises and was on the run. Police ordered all the downtown streets of Honolulu closed, evacuated homes closest to Xerox, and locked down a local school. By 9.45 a.m., a jogger noticed an odd-looking man sitting in a green minivan smoking a cigarette on an off-road. Thinking he may be Byron, they called police. Around 10 a.m., an officer in an unmarked car went to the road and confirmed the man was Byron. Police blocked the road Byron was on and evacuated families living nearby. By 10.20 a.m., Byron's brother Dennis heard on the radio that Byron was a suspect in the Xerox shooting. By 10.35 a.m., officers got in contact with Dennis and their father to try and talk Byron into surrendering. Dennis decided to go, with Hiroyuki declining. 
Meanwhile, at the crime scene, a representative of the Honolulu Police Department confirmed that the seven men found at Xerox were all dead from gunshot wounds. And they were identified as 33-year-old Jason Balatico, 41-year-old Ford Kanahira, 50-year-old Ronald Karaoka, 54-year-old Ronald Kawame, 53-year-old Melvin Lee, 46-year-old Peter Mark, and 36-year-old John Sakamoto. These men were fathers, brothers, friends, co-workers, and all they wanted to do was to go to work and live another day to see their families. By 11 a.m., police negotiators and Dennis surrounded Byron and tried to talk to him into surrendering. He talked to them for hours, saying he'd surrender, only to take it back and repeat this over and over. Meanwhile, while his son was still negotiating, Hiroyuki was surrounded by reporters. While he didn't talk too much to them, he told them one thing, quote, I am going to bring him another gun so he can shoot himself. I would tell him to shoot himself, end quote. According to reports, the reason why Hiroyuki said this to reporters was because he was apparently so ashamed of Byron's actions that he'd rather his son take his life as an act of responsibility. But by 2.50 p.m., shortly after his father's interview and after negotiating for almost four hours, Byron exited his van and surrendered to police. In the minivan, police found the murder weapon, a 9mm handgun, and Byron is later charged with murder. A little before 4 p.m., Hiroyuki released another statement, saying, quote, The Yashugi family would like to express its deepest sympathy and condolences to the victims and their families. We are also trying to understand what has happened today. We offer our prayers during this tragedy, end quote. At his preliminary hearing, on November 6, 1999, Byron pleaded innocent to one count of first-degree murder and seven counts of secondary murder, and he was held on a $7 million bail. Byron's actual trial began on May 15, 2000. The psychiatrist for the defense argued that Byron was not guilty due to reason of insanity because his client feared that there was a conspiracy going on amongst his co-workers to get him fired. However, on the other end, the prosecution psychiatrist argued that he was angry that he was facing termination of employment due to insubordination because he didn't take the training. 
Additionally, the prosecution argued Byron demonstrated that he knew what he was doing when he committed the massacre. By June 13, 2000, after two hours of deliberation, the 12-person jury found Byron guilty on all charges. Since Hawaii did not and currently does not have the death penalty, Byron Yashugi was sentenced to life without parole on August 8, 2000. Byron Yashugi has had all his appeals rejected. In the aftermath, according to reports, in 2005, both Xerox and Castle Hospital, who evaluated Byron, settled a lawsuit brought by the victim's families. The families argued that both Xerox and the hospital were negligent in not protecting society from Byron's instability, saying that Byron's violent tendencies were known as far back as 1993. More so, the Hawaiian state legislature has since passed a law that requires medical professionals to provide information on the mental state of those who are applying for the purchase of a gun. Byron Yashugi remains in prison. The story of Brian Yashugi and the 1999 Xerox murders comes from the sources of the Honolulu Advertiser, The Independent, The New York Times, and others I'll put in the notes. All right, so that one was a, 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 a crazy one, I should say. All crimes are crazy, if you ask me. Um, but this one was a, a, a loopy one. Um, so therefore, for this one, I want to just talk maybe like one, two sentences about my opinion on this one, because I do want to know what you all think about this case. Um, however, for me, I believe sort of with the families, I sort of agree with the families, like people knew the Xerox Corporation knew, his bosses knew that Byron had violent tendencies and he was not totally mentally stable. Therefore, I feel like they could have done something back then to pre prevent this, even if it meant firing him. Now, if they had fired him back then, who knows, he may have committed the massacre back then, who knows, but I feel like they could have taken a preventative step uh, to have prevented the 1999 Xerox murders. Um, and I don't know for sure if he was bullied on the job or was it his mental health telling him that he was being bullied. I don't think we'll ever know. Um, I don't really know if he know, we'll know the real motive as to why he did it. Um, I just think it was mostly that he didn't want to take the new training and that the consequences were that he would possibly be fired. And I think Byron took that in his own hands. And I don't think that was the mental health. I don't know. I could be wrong. I'm not a medical professional, um, but I think he just got mad that he was told what to do, something new, and he didn't want to do it. And that's simply what I think. Um, so therefore, I would like to know what you think. And um, that's it. Thank you for tuning in to this brand new episode of 90s Crime Time, and I hope you were intrigued. If you enjoyed this episode, like I mentioned before, I'd like to know what you think of it on the show's uh, social media, such as Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, if you enjoy the show and you haven't already, please leave a review, hopefully in a good way, on any podcast platform that has 90s Crime Time, uh, well, that 90s Crime Time is on and has a rating system, primarily Apple. 
So please help me out with that and hopefully give the show at least four stars. Um, Lastly, I would like to give a shout out to one of 90s Crime Times fans named Mita. She has been such a wonderful help to the show and has helped keep the show afloat. Uh, So thank you again, Mita. You know who you are. Uh, Thank you again. I told you I would shout you out for helping out the show and me personally. Uh, So thank you again, Mita. Um, So yeah, you all stay safe and healthy. um, And I'll see you soon for a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time.